Hi, I'm Tracy Koga, and thanks for downloading this podcast from ilikehugh.com. If you can, give us a follow or subscribe. And remember that all the information about the guests in today's episode can be found at ilikehugh.com. Now, let's get started. everyone. Welcome to Hue at Home. I'm Tracy Koga. We're going to dive right into it. We're going to head into the Hue chat room. I've got guests in Winnipeg and in Vancouver. Plus, in the hot seat, I've got Dr. Cheryl Rockman-Greenberg. In the last, I think, at least for sure a year and a half, I have never used the word vaccine more in my life. And I guess we've all become familiar with vaccines through the pandemic, through COVID, and I have my very special friend here, and I'm going to say she's an expert on everything to do with medical information, especially rare genetic diseases, but it's so good to have you live here in person, Cheryl, Dr. Cheryl Rockman-Greenberg, but from now on, I'm calling you Cheryl, and uh, we had a really interesting conversation over the phone, and I really wanted to do this chat And we are also going to have some virtual guests join us, too, because information needs to be out there. Um, You know, we've, like I said before, we've learned so much through COVID and how fast a vaccine can come. And it's not a cure, but definitely has given um, at least some room of comfort. Now, for you and your line of study, uh, rare genetic diseases and the whole long process of getting even a drug to even to one level and let alone even become available is so unbelievably long. What is so important? What needs to change, I guess? And we'll talk about it. Well, Tracy, first of all, thank you so much for showing some interest in this subject. Mm -hmm. Because as you mentioned, you know, during COVID time, we all, regardless of the area in which we work, have been so consumed with COVID. And this is not in any way to say that whatever COVID has taught us is not important, but it also brings up the point that you know, life goes on for people outside of COVID. And you know, my colleagues and I have had to try to continue to respond to the areas in which we work and to meet our patients' needs. So to do a talk today a little bit about some of the challenges that our patients face when dealing with rare disorders. And there are many, many rare disorders that are genetic, but there are many rare disorders that are not genetic. To, be, to have a program on this is something I greatly, greatly appreciate. It's certainly very close to my heart. So I'm really happy to talk about um, but rare diseases, and not so much in the time of COVID, but especially in the time of COVID, we cannot forget that there are people out there who are dealing with the day-to-day issues of complex rare diseases. And it's hard, too, because the hospitals are full. Like, for you, um, I guess, Cheryl, what, in your own personal opinion, have you seen, you know, with these patients that are also so sick but cannot get the right help? 
Well, I think one of the messages that came through throughout COVID and people were afraid to go to hospitals, afraid to go to the doctors, if you have any disease, whether it's a rare genetic disease or a rare disease, and you need help, you must seek out your help, your care providers, and people have to continue to go to emergency or to their care providers to get the help. So that, you know, the care of patients with rare diseases has continued throughout COVID and should continue throughout COVID. Many of the, much of the care has gone virtual, so there's many appointments that can be done virtually, and that has actually been a great boon for patients, particularly those who live out of town, far from the, from the tertiary center where we work and where some of our, when our guest, Dr. Sears, works. So virtual medicine has really enhanced our ability to reach our patients with rare genetic and metabolic disorders. But nonetheless, face-to-face -face meetings and the care that they require has, 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 has probably increased um, because people have had the questions, of course, what does COVID mean to my rare disease? So we've had to deal with that with all our groups of patients, as well as dealing with their underlying condition. And now let's talk about clinical trials or, or the process yeah. to get a drug approved. How long and how arduous is it? Well, it is said from the time a research discovery is made about a potential for a new treatment to the time you can actually in your doctor's office, receive a prescription. It could be about 20 years. You know. Now we know how accelerated access to vaccines have happened during COVID, but in the world of rare genetic metabolic diseases, discoveries are increasing exponentially through research and through clinical trials. But the whole process of ultimately getting approval and you know, having drugs on provincial formularies takes a very, very long time. It's a very, very complicated process. There are many, many players involved. Oh, I, and well, who, do we, who could we lobby to? Or who could we go to? Well, well I always say the most important thing, you know, when you present to your physician is that the diagnosis has to be made. So when you're dealing with rare diseases, whether they're genetic or non-genetic, the very first thing is you have to get a diagnosis. So it's up to my colleagues and I and the care providers in the community to make sure that they keep rare diseases on their agenda and to seek out the proper specialty consultations and subspecialty consultations to get access to accurate diagnoses. So once you have a diagnosis, okay, then it's up to the care provider and the specialists and subspecialists involved to identify are there any new treatments from a pharmacologic point of view, any new drugs that can be used for this disorder? Um, are these drugs in clinical trials? And most clinical trials are either done from, um, they're pharmaceutically uh, driven and they're pharma-oriented, or sometimes the investigator himself or herself can lead a clinical trial. So are there clinical trials to which we can refer our patients? And once the clinical trials, uh, and we have many um, websites and the ability to follow where are the clinical trials for certain diseases. And once a clinical trial is over, the data have to be analyzed mm -hmm. and then decide, you know, is the drug meeting the outcome measures that is necessary, you know, is the outcome that the drug is effective, has it been proven? Is the drug safe? How good is the evidence? And then is the whole process of going with our regulatory bodies mm -hmm. to decide, will this drug actually be approved and we recommend it to list on our provincial formularies. And once it, there is an approval process, then of course 
the, the, the company that is sponsoring the clinical trial or whoever is dealing with the drug has to negotiate a price that <laughs> the payers will agree to. <laughs> and we'll stop it right there because I know price is actually a great segue to our virtual guests. I want to welcome Dr. Sandra Sirs. She's an endoc endocrinologist at the University of British Columbia. Welcome, Sandra. And of course, Tara Fowler. And Tara, you're going to share your personal story. I'm going to get Cheryl to introduce you, but I am actually going to welcome both of you into our virtual chat. And Sandra, uh, pricing. Why are some drugs so astronomically expensive? Uh, thank you, and, and I'd just like to echo uh, Cheryl's thanks for having a, a podcast on this topic because, like Cheryl, I feel very strongly that this uh, the scope of this problem is not something that most people know, and we really need people to know about it, not just patients and doctors, but taxpayers uh, and government. We're talking about a humongous scope in terms of price. We are talking about multiple drugs that cost $500,000, dollars $800,000 a year or more per patient for ongoing therapy. And some of the newer gene therapies uh, and specialized cancer therapies uh, will be in the seven figures, so over a million dollars. Now, there are several aspects to this, okay? The first aspect is that although rare diseases are rare, collectively there's a whole bunch of them and it's actually estimated that one in 12 Canadians has a rare disease. So when we're looking at these very, very high cost drugs, we are actually in a situation currently in Canada where close to 10% of provincial drug budgets are being used to fund a fraction of a percent of patients. And that would be fine for those drugs that work really well, uh, right? Because I think Canadians in general, they support uh, the treatment of patients with bad diseases. The problem with rare diseases is that doing research on them is more difficult. So we often, when a drug comes to market, don't know how well it works. Uh, and in fact, many of these drugs actually, when we have studied them after they've been on the market, do not work very well at all or, or at all. Uh, and so when we're talking about not just astronomical costs and astronomical costs that are, you know, at the level which is not sustainable in a publicly funded healthcare system, but also when we have uh, serious questions about whether or not a drug works, because you don't want to keep giving a patient a drug that does not work, uh, you know, you're exposing them to the side effects and you're not helping them, then we really see that what we need is some infrastructure around not just escalating the access, because for sure we want patients to get rapid access to drugs, but we also need to know if they work, because if they don't work, we need to stop giving them to them. That's the first thing. And the second thing is we need to say, why doesn't it work? I mean, it sounds like it should work. It makes sense that it should work, but it doesn't work. So what do we need to do to actually find a drug that does work? That's what we need for patients. We need access and we need drugs that work. Uh, and uh, those two things right now are being, uh, are, are really a problem. Wow. Um, and I guess too, um, Sandra, in your opinion, um, how, how safe are, are drugs? 
Some drugs are, are not very safe at all. Um, I'll give you an example of, uh, of that was a recent study looking at certain cancer drugs are sometimes expedited to the market uh, because there's an unmet need and then, uh, and then you need to collect evidence on how well they work after people are already taking them. And a very recent study showed that about 30% of the drugs that were brought to the market in that way, so brought to market without evidence that they worked yet because they were expedited, didn't work at all. And this has two consequences from a patient's viewpoint, both of which are unacceptable. So the first is that these are cancer drugs and this, and therefore have a wide range of side effects and the patients continued to take them and were exposed to the wide range of side effects. And secondly, and more importantly, those patients, because they were taking a drug that did not work, were not offered a drug that might have worked. And so this is unacceptable, I think, for patients and physicians. So one, although we, we all want to speed up access, we need to do it in such a way that we have a way of evaluating whether or not the drug is working. And that's just a critical piece uh, in terms of giving the best care to patients. Wow. Okay, so I want to bring in Tara, and I want you, Cheryl, maybe just to give a little preface. Sure, sure. Um, also, thank you, Sandra, for everything that you've said. Uh, when you talk a little bit about evidence, uh, I, I want to just qualify this to reassure people who are listening. <laughs> and I know, Sandra, that, every, that I'm not directly involved in COVID research and vaccine research, but I have a lot of confidence in the people and the science who are making recommendations regarding access to COVID vaccines. So this is not about COVID. <laughs> no, we've no, got good no. evidence. Yes, and they work. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, but talking about our access to drugs for rare and ultra rare diseases, um, I'm not Tara's daughter, whose name is Megan's doctor. I am a colleague of Tara's uh, Megan's doctor. Um, Tara's daughter's name is Megan, mm -hmm. and she was diagnosed, well, 2018 or so, um, with, uh, or 2017, with an ultra-rare kidney disease, um, dense deposit disease, DDD, goes by a couple of names, and um, her specialist, who cares for, for Megan, contacted me because, you know, I'm involved in, in, in helping get access mm -hmm. um, to proven drugs for rare diseases. Uh, if I could help in the process of acquiring access to an, another drug called Eculizumab that was approved in other countries for a variety of, of similar kidney diseases, but not specifically for dense deposit disease. And... Um, um, Megan's doctor, Megan and Tara, uh, started on a journey in 2018 that I'll let Tara tell you about. Tara? Hi, thank you so much for inviting me into this talk today. Um, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about our experience with trying to get um, a, a rare drug for the rare disease that Megan has. Um, like Dr. Um, like Cheryl said, it is called Ecoluzumab. And at the time in 2018, it was one of the most expensive drugs in the world. Um, and I know Dr. Megan's doctor and her whole team worked really hard at getting access to it. They spent probably from February to April trying to get access to our drug, to this particular drug that we needed. Um, we applied to the company 
and we got a denial letter. We applied to Manitoba Health and we received a denial letter. Um, I reached out to the government, to the Manitoba Health Minister here in our province and got a denial letter. Our insurance wouldn't cover it. Um, we were able to get, the, uh, Megan's team was able to um, advocate for her and we were able to get four doses back in April and May of 2018, um, funded by, I believe it was the Children's Hospital Foundation, don't quote me on that though. Um, and so we did get access to four doses through April and May and then um, through the Children's Hospital and then the WHRA was able to access their contingency fund and get us four more doses. So um, we were lucky enough to get a total of eight doses back in 2018 and um, uh, because Megan had decompensated and wasn't doing very well at all in 2018 and uh, was losing kidney function and had a really bad nephrotic flare. And so after receiving ecluzumab, or eight doses of ecluzumab from April to September, um, her kidney function rose back up and um, she no longer needed to be hospitalized and uh, did not need any kind of um, treatment besides the basic kidney disease treatment. And so we were super happy that we were able to access that those eight doses. Um, Unfortunately, that was it. We didn't have any more after that. Um, and by spring of 2019, she was in full-on kidney failure. And so our, our concern is, you know, we can get temporary to the expense. It wasn't approved for long-term use. And uh, we really needed long-term use of this drug to save Megan's kidney. <laughs> Oh, wow. It's hard to see. I don't know if you yeah. got the most of that. She ultimately got approval for a longer course, mm -hmm. but by then, Megan's kidney um, function had deteriorated to the point that the drug could no longer be used anymore, and that Megan went on dialysis oh, and is on goodness. a transplant list now. And can I, Tara, can I ask, what was the cost of the drug? Um... $50,000 a dose. I think each, I, I know the first two doses were higher, and I think they were $12,000 a dose. Wow. Um, and after that, they were, yeah, they were $8,000 a dose. Incredible. Um, Ecolizumab in adults uh, is, is uh, over, the list price is over $700,000 a year. Oh yeah. my goodness. Um, so Megan, Megan as a child would, would obviously be at a lower dose, but uh, like as Tara said, uh, one of the most expensive drugs in the world. And interestingly, Canada has the highest prices of ecolizumab, to my knowledge, than any country in the world. Yeah, that's, a, that's another issue. And then, <laughs> and yeah, and who, who regulates that? The government? <laughs> who, who creates those prices? Uh, well, don't get me started. The yeah, go for it, Sandra. Go for it, Sandra. Uh, <laughs> uh, creates those prices, and Dumb. I think this is actually one of the, the. I hate to hear stories like Tara is talking about with Megan. You know how much pressure on families. Mm -hmm. That's not what we we need families to do, uh, yeah. right? If we had some kind of infrastructure where we could say, okay, this is a very rare kidney disease. We don't know if this drug works in this kidney disease, so let's slot her in and do, you know, what we call an N of one trial, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and if she responds, then she can continue, right? And that contributes to evidence, then that, that would have saved this family and all of the people around her who were lobbying and advocating 
debilitating and we, we don't want patients to have to deal with this. At the same time, since I've told you that the ecluzumab prices are higher in Canada than in other countries, you have to say, well, you know, WTF, you know, if you pardon the language. <laughs> and actually, Canada has the third highest drug prices in the OECD. I think Canadians think that Canada has good prices because it has good prices relative to the United States. But that's not saying good anything. <laughs> and there, you know, this is another reason we want people to know about this problem, because if, for example, there are uh, strategies that governments might propose to try and rein in prices, uh, we, we believe that taxpayers need to know that these have to be supported, right? Because this is just not feasible. And there's no reason whatsoever that Canada should pay more for the same drug than, than Britain or Australia. Why should we pay more than, than that? So we need to actually support that. And the final thing I'll say, it sort of goes back to the COVID situation where I think a lot of people were saying, well, why isn't Canada in the business of manufacturing vaccines? You know, would our supply have been better if we were in the business of manufacturing the vaccines? And I would just say that the issue of manufacturing drugs in Canada is something that has been lost over many, many governments of many different stripes. It wasn't a decision by, by any. But I'm hoping as people now seem to support the idea of, of maybe local vaccine manufacturer that they might also say, hey, should we be looking at some of the other drugs that are really putting a, a, a drain on our healthcare system. And, and that's, again, why we want public the public to know about this problem. So rather than saying that's a crazy waste of money to make, make stuff, let's just buy it from another country, uh, maybe they'll say, hey, you know, maybe the better thing to do for some drugs is actually to make them in Canada. And you agree, Cheryl? I totally agree. I, I wanted to just build on that with three different Three quick comments. Um, the first has to do, I mean, pricing is really an important factor ultimately in whether our patients can access these drugs and whether they'll be listed on prov provincial formularies. So there's no question that pricing is important. And Sandra and many others are working on strategies with multiple stakeholders to how to make this, this whole issue of pricing of drugs for rare diseases, you know, more um, uh, economical in the sense that that is going to improve the access. Um, the, the, the same thing um, has to do with uh, pricing is not the only reason but whether or not a drug will get listed on our formularies. It has, as Sandra mentioned, a lot to do with evidence. Mm -hmm. And we know because our clinical trials for rare disorders often involve a small number of patients, not thousands and thousands like you might see in COVID, that evidence sometimes is slow in accumulating. But that does not mean that we mustn't continue to do the proper clinical trials and gain the evidence. And the N equal one route and accumulating what's called real world evidence to help make the case whether or not a drug is effective is something that we strongly, strongly advocate. And thirdly, as um, Sandra mentioned, you know, the, the pressure on the patients to try the patients are under tremendous pressure. They're quite desperate. They want something something to help their disease, to help their child's disease. And um, they're very vulnerable. So as physicians, you know, we have to make sure that all the patients' needs are, are met and that they are, are feeling supported by their health care providers and also by the public in helping gain access to proven new drugs for these rare diseases. And there's an exponential increase in the number of approved drugs that we're going to see in the next five to ten years, which is exciting for patients, exciting mm -hmm. for families, and exciting for, for us as care providers.
Oh, no doubt. And do you kind of think that maybe this whole pandemic has kind of spurred that on too? Um, it, it hasn't hurt. Yeah. Because it does, it has highlighted the whole area. I mean, you know, for years and years, I've been getting flu vaccines. I never dawned on me to ask what's in a vaccine, you know? Yeah, no. Yes, I get the vaccine. Now people, I think, are learning that it's important to ask questions mm -hmm. and it's important to, uh, to, to really to seek out answers, uh, but to pick and choose really where the, the real sources of, of the right answers are available to them. So I think it's, it's definitely helped. Yes. It's definitely helped. So Tara now, um, how is Megan? And I guess, how, how are you and, and the family now moving forward? <laughs> Uh, Megan has been on dialysis since July of 2019, and um, she does well on dialysis. She goes four days a week. Um, it helps her tremendously. Um, she is scheduled for transplant on November 4th. Wow. She'll be keeping my kidney. Oh, wow. Wonderful. So uh, the, the strain on our family has been enormous. Um, you know, she was extremely sick from her kidney failure in spring of 2019. And um, her and I spent two months in hospital. So I lived there. I worked from the hospital. I spent some time, you know, four hours a, a day going into work. Um, and so she wasn't at home with us. And I wasn't at home with my other family members. And um, now that she's getting dialysis, her, her father takes her back and forth to the hospital four times a week. And so, you know, there's, there's a cost and there's a strain on the whole family when, when one of the family members is so sick. Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, I want to add one thing, you know, Tara, the striving to get approval for eculizumab is not over, <laughs> even after the transplant, you know. There's some evidence that, you know, we're going to have to restart, you know, that request, um, depending how, how Megan does, because um, ecolizumab may still be indicated, you know, in some of the post-transplant patients. Mm -hmm. And as even, even in the past three years, the evidence for the use of ecolizumab in this and some other similar kidney diseases, you know, is changing the, the, uh, all the indications. And as, as Sandra says, you know, you know, the real world evidence needs to be accumulated so we can make our mm -hmm. right recommendations to our payers and our mm -hmm. regulators. So the case is ongoing. I, I was curious, how old is Megan, Tara? Oh, she might be frozen. Tara, how old is Megan? I don't think she can. She is now 17. Am I unfrozen? Yeah, you're unfrozen now. You're unfrozen, <laughs> but I couldn't make that out. Okay. It was garbled. Say again. Megan is, Megan is 17 years old. Now oh, lovely. Oh, my goodness. And who knows, you know, um, you know, maybe she'll be she walking down graduation row, right? Um, yeah. If all things go, you know, are, go considered. And, wow, it's, uh, I, I guess, a silver lining through all of this, too. And, I mean, I can't imagine the strain on your on your family, Tara. And, I mean, and, and of course... COVID and everything else that on top of it. But um, I think that you are in good hands with such advocates like this. And oh, She has a wonderful doctor, her specialist, <laughs> her kid, pediatric kidney specialist. And you'll yeah. soon be moving up to the adult world. Oh, no. But they'll take good <laughs> yeah. care of her, too. Our, 
We're a little nervous about that transfer. They're keeping us until uh, she's 19, though, because of COVID, everything's been delayed. Oh, so that's good. That's a little good. grateful for that. We get to stay with our favorite team until she's 19 yeah, because good. Megan's team has been fantastic. Her transplant yeah. doctor has advocated for her. And if her disease begins to attack her kidney again after surgery, she is already qualified to enter a trial for a different drug. Um, oh. that will help with her C3G. So, you know, there's trials coming down the pipeline and there's new drugs coming down the pipeline and uh, we want to be part of that and of creating um, and approving new drugs. So she couldn't say it. I know. She says it better than ever. Right? Yeah. So, I, Tara, any kind of words of wisdom for other families that could be in the same situation as yours? Um... The thing that's been most supportive to me besides Megan's own team is seeking out parents of children who also have the same disease and just talking to them and connecting with them. That has been extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. No doubt. And for you, Sandra, I know that you're going to be marching on along with, with Cheryl here. Um, what can we do now as concerned citizens you know and and rightfully so we don't know anything about this until we're actually in it and until we're actually like tara and that at that point it almost seems like a little too late but what can we do now well i i think every stakeholder uh has a role here i think patients and families like tara has said they said that she supports developing new evidence we need everyone to support developing new evidence. In fact, we need it to be mandatory, I think, in terms of when we actually don't know if a drug works, we need to collect evidence to say that it does. We also need patients and families to understand that if the drug doesn't work, that we should be stopping it, uh, right? And that's a really hard thing to understand if you're talking about a rare disease where there's not something uh, else. We need physicians, as Cheryl said, to think could this be a rare disease? They don't have to. Uh, they don't have to know which one, but they need to think. Well, is it possible that it's a rare disease? And they also need to support the evidence collection. We need governments to support uh, provide us some infrastructure to actually get high quality real world evidence collected. And we need them to use that to reevaluate decisions, as Cheryl has said with Ecolucumab in particular, uh, when it came to dark market several years ago, there wasn't information on these kidney diseases and we need to change that. And finally, and quite frankly, we need manufacturers to drop the price. They price the profit margin on rare disease drugs is double the profit margin on drugs for common diseases. That is not reasonable. What is reasonable is for them to make a fair profit, the same profit, and that will mean the drugs will be more expensive than drugs for high blood pressure or diabetes, but double the profit, that is not acceptable. And we need to work with other countries, I think, to really try and rein in that spending. And that's what we want taxpayers to support. We want taxpayers to support any initiatives that we can to bring the prices down on the drugs so, so that the patients can have them. Right. That's what's mm -hmm. important. Yes. Bottom line. We just want to find a cure and you know, quality of life. So, yeah. um, Cheryl, I guess if you want to close up, but I think, you know, thank you so much, Tara, for sharing your story and good luck. Our fingers crossed for you and Megan, November 4th. It's going to be thank a mir miracle day. And uh, thank you so much, Dr. Sandra Sirs. I I'm sure that we'll have you back. I want to see where we've gone or if we've gone thank any you. further. Well, th there are 
are many support organizations and lay groups in Canada who are working on many aspects of a rare disease strategy for Canada. And maybe I can give you some links and yes. maybe you can share with your listeners, you know, if they want yeah. to get more information about this, um, you know, how to, to become better informed. Because no question, we need all the support we can get for our patients. Oh, well, thank you so much. We'll post those links up on our Facebook page at I Like You. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank it's you. always thank been you so a much for having us. Thank you, Tara, for coming. Sandra, thank you. Nice to see you. We'll speak again very soon. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Hugh at Home. Coming up next, another installment from our Japanese-Canadian retrospective. This time, Yayoi Brandt shares her lived experience as a Canadian. Japanese Canadians. So yours is unique though. Born yes. in Taiwan to yes. begin with. So tell yes. us a little, little bit about your childhood. Okay. Um, I was born in Taiwan um, a year before the end of Second World War. And uh, my father was a um, tea plant, um, I guess, production of um, Mitsui Trading Company in Japan, and uh, yeah, he was asked to stay another year after the war to teach locals, I guess, to mm -hmm. continue the uh, production of uh, tea. So I was born 1946, and when I was three months, we went back to Japan. So you grew up in Japan. What yes. was it like then, Yayoi, after the war? We didn't have much. We were poor, I'm sure, you know. And uh, my parents worked hard to give us, provide our education and all that. So, but um, I don't have to, I, I think I have a very 
happy childhood, you know, friends and family nearby. So um, in that sense, I didn't feel any racial or anything like a Japanese Canadian here experienced. And then you made the decision to come here to Winnipeg. So what spurred that? Actually, um, I went to uh, London, Ontario. That was my first residence in Canada. And uh, my uh, sister's family, uh, they lived in uh, London, Ontario. And my sister's husband was teaching at the University of Western Ontario. So at the college age, I was. So um, they kind of invited, you know, you like to come here, you know. So um, I went there. Before that, I think um, this brother-in-law, who was um, a gynecologist in Japan, and my sister and her husband went, went to uh, U.S. and as a resident of the hospital in the hospital, and uh, he hoped to be you know, working as a gynecologist. But um, I think he experienced, that was 1957. It was, you know, 10 years, <laughs> 10 years after the war. So there's lots of uh, discrimination. And mm -hmm. uh, especially, you know, gynecologists, uh, many women told him that he didn't, they didn't want to be examined by a yellow doctor. He had to change, switch from the practice to sort of about academics and teaching and research. But anyway, he got a job in London, Ontario there. So that's why I went there. And then how did you come to Winnipeg? My um, brother-in-law got a job in University of Manitoba, so mm -hmm. they are moving. But I got a job after the university job in Toronto. But my mother was worried about that I'm enjoying too much my single life <laughs> and uh, didn't show any intention of uh, finding marriage partner. So um, they came to Winnipeg and they summoned me, right? <laughs> and uh, they gave me two choice, two choices. Um, go back with them to Japan and so that I could I marry with someone that my family chose or I moved from Toronto to Winnipeg and uh, live under my sister's supervision so I chose to stay in Winnipeg <laughs> <laughs> and live with your sister yeah. <laughs> But, and back then, too, marriages were quite frequently arranged, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, and you would never know who it would be. Your parents would pick someone and right, right. that would be I, your... I'm sure that by, by that time that I would be able to see the person and, you know, communication, but, uh, yeah. So now you're here in Winnipeg, a young woman going to university what was it like for you? Obviously different. Actually, by that time, I'd been working right? at the university. Yeah, I was, oh, the language is very difficult. 
English was my favorite sub subject, and I had a good mark and everything in Japan, right? Mm -hmm. But then came here, no, can't hear anything, can't speak anything, and for almost two years, I cried every day kind of thing. I want to go back to Japan. <laughs> you know? Oh my goodness. Yeah. So how did so you? So it was yeah. hard to adjust the language. That was a hard part. And so what changed it for you? I guess um, living with my sister and then at home, we were speaking Japanese all the time, right? But then I went to Toronto by myself and I really have to be on my own. Yeah, so that part maybe helped me out. And also probably getting married to a Caucasian <laughs> English speaker, maybe that helped me out quite a bit. And how did the two of you meet? My husband often tells people that he um, changed um, his boss to from my sister because to me, to your younger sister, because uh, his first job was at the Cancer Foundation mm -hmm. and uh, my sister was a supervisor. That's how we met, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> She was his boss. Yeah, his boss. <laughs> and, and what was it about him that you knew it was the one? Funny thing is, my mother sent um, me to meet Japanese man who lives uh, Edmonton or Calgary. Yeah, and uh, he arranged some meeting, you know, while I was in Toronto, and. Um, I wasn't interested in marriage that time yet, so I ignored, and then he came and, you know, so on. So it didn't work out well with this mm -hmm. arranged person, right? So I, ne I knew that if I don't do something about it, that uh, I'll be <laughs> in trouble. <laughs> so then you met your husband yes, right away. So. <laughs> and so now life for you, Yayoi, making a home here, fitting in. What has it been like getting or meeting the Japanese Canadian community here in Manitoba? Yes, um, first time I involved with the Japanese community is um, teaching Japanese language <laughs> in the school. And so I learned a lot from people interacting with, especially those um, people, Mr. Abe, or Thelma Kojima, or um, Connie Matsuo, those people who helped um, to establish a language school. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, they are, they all passed away, but um, they are the role model for me. And also too, Yayoi, you weren't here in Canada during the internment and the redress. Mm -hmm. Learning about that, how, what kind of impression did it make on you for the Japanese Canadians that went through it? Yes, I didn't know anything about it until I involved with this. And especially, I've been um, involved quite many years um, with the Outlook, the Japanese Community Newsletter. So I learned it from um, the newsletter as well as uh, uh, people here interacting. And, uh, 
yeah. And uh, it was a very, very moving experience, I hear from the people who really experienced it. And they're very open to sharing all the stories and histories and experiences. Mm -hmm. So it was yeah. a good learning process for mm -hmm. me. Did it change your view of Japan, your home, on learning about this? Yes, in a way, and uh, being aware of the horrible consequences of war, and as well as the uh, Japanese military system, they really did not only um, <coughs> China and Korea, right? And actually, Taiwan, I think they did a very good thing for um, Taiwan people. So Taiwanese people, they have a very good relationship. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, through this redress and all that history, yeah, made me think of um, how people, Japan especially, military system. And I, I guess it, it's all people changes in the situation, so we really have to work out our prejudice and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, bias. And that's so true. And we're learning about that so much more now in this world. Would there, or what would there be if you had the chance to do it all over again? I'm not sure, like that, you know, human being is human being, right? I, I don't think the um, racial bias we all have, and uh, we have to recognize that first in youth, and somehow work out with, uh, with other ethnic group of people. Yeah, try to, especially recently indigenous, you know, people, very sad, very sad. Mm -hmm. We really do have to work out, work with the people, with different ethnic people. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. And you've been a teacher, you've taught language, you love English, you've made Winnipeg your home. What is the most important thing that you're proud of? Proud of? Yes, that <laughs> you have brought to Winnipeg. I was the youngest of uh, four, and all my sisters and brother, two brothers, their closest brother is 10 years older than I am, and oldest one is 16 years older than I am. So it's, you know, I'm the baby of the family, right? And I was spoiled, and I was uh, sort of a mom's baby that um, came out here. And even though I had my sister's family, I survived this far. <laughs> <laughs> have family, and uh, that's that's the only thing I I have. And right. it's so important. Yeah, so important. Words of wisdom for any young Japanese Japanese woman that would like to come to Canada. As I experienced, the language barrier is a great way. 
but be patient. It won't come right away. It will take time, but be patient. And uh, it is uh, immersing in the language is the best way to learn quickly. Okay, I guess recognize your own um, racial prejudice and bias, and uh, know each other, your neighbor, you know, your your, your community. That's about it. Yeah, and learn each other's history, I guess, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's all part of undoing our biases. Right, is by right. learning the right. truth. Right, and the story. I mean, you know, Jacob is. Uh, yeah, strong voice for the human rights and well respected as well. So um, involving in the Jacob will help us understand as well. Yeah. Well, thank you, Yayoi, so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me here. The Hive is a climbing and fitness facility, so we're bouldering only, which means no ropes or harnesses. We use mats for protection. The four pillars of our business are climbing, education, health and wellness, and community, and those aspects all kind of come together to create like a five-star climbing experience. We want to give a very big special thank you to all of our guests on today's show and leave you with this question. What was the most expensive drug that you have ever paid for? We want to know, so send us an email to hello at ilikehugh.com or message us on Facebook and Instagram at ilikehugh. But for now, stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time on Hugh at Home. April's gray, the softest light. See through the sleep I couldn't find last night. Look how beautiful it is outside. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of iLikeQ.com. Podcast distribution from the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. We all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.